First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you are God's people. But now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there is no greater privilege than to be those who have been Reborn in Jesus Christ. By your Holy Spirit, you have brought us from spiritual life, from spiritual death, excuse me, to spiritual life. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now you have brought us to spiritual life. And Father, we are so thankful for that because we are now like infants who long for the word who hunger and thirst after it. We are addicted to your word, Father, because we have tasted and seen that you are good. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we come before you as a weak people, as I come before you as a weak person, Lord, feeling right now overwhelmed by the task before me, that you would come and speak your word to your people. Father, that's why we've come. We've come to taste and see that you are good. So Lord, do that now. Do that now in our presence. Overwhelm us, we pray, with who you are and what you have done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we realize that we have not come to play games. We have come to do spiritual warfare. Fight on our behalf now, Lord, we pray. If you do not defend us, we are defenseless. We ask this all in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, our conquering King Jesus. Amen. Well, after a brief break last week for Father's Day, we now jump back into our summer series through the book of 1 Peter. 
And some of you may be wondering why it is that we chose to go through the book of 1 Peter this summer. And the reason we decided to do so is because the elders here at Sovereign Grace, after what we had been through through this year and the previous year, was how do we prepare our people? How do we prepare the people of Sovereign Grace for the inevitable suffering that they will experience in their lives? Because I hope you realize, if you haven't already, that suffering in your life is inevitable. If you're not currently experiencing suffering right now, you will in the near future. And the reason that suffering in your life is inevitable is, is twofold. There's two reasons why. First of all, because we live in a fallen world. Now that's not because God created the world fallen. He created it perfect. As Genesis says, God saw all that he created and he saw that it was good. But creation didn't stay that way, did it? All you have to do is look around to see that. Once Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating from the tree that he told them not to, God pronounced a curse upon all creation and essentially boiled down to its very essence, the, the, the curse was that all creation would now suffer. All creation would now experience decay and death. Because of the sin of our first parents, all creation would now experience suffering. So the first reason that suffering is inevitable in your life is because of the fall. And the second reason suffering is inevitable is because as a Christian, God has promised you. Now this isn't a fun promise to claim, but God has promised you that you will suffer. For example, Paul said in Acts 14.22 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Jesus said in John 15.20, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised, Christians, at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, suffering is not something that's strange to the Christian. For the Christian, suffering is to be expected. And as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So suffering is inevitable in our lives because we're a part of the fallen creation on the one hand and because we're Christians, God promises us that we'll suffer. And so in light of that truth, the question we as your elders had to ask ourselves was, what are we doing to prepare our people for the suffering that God promises will come into their lives? How are we proactively preparing them for the suffering and the grief and the pain and the loss that they will most assuredly experience? And for us, preaching through the book of 1 Peter was a part of the answer to that question. Because the book of 1 Peter is all about, from beginning to end, suffering. Peter wrote this epistle, in fact, to his original hearers to encourage them to look to Christ in the midst of their sufferings, to look to Christ as their only hope in the midst of their pain and loss and persecution. And so the key, the key to being prepared for the inevitable sufferings that we will all experience in our lives is to build our entire lives, every part of our lives around Jesus. To look to Jesus as our only hope now. You see, brothers and sisters, it is our desire 
that the Holy Spirit would powerfully, powerfully speak to you through this letter. That he would turn your eyes to Jesus as, their, as either preparation for the suffering that you will experience in the near future or encouragement for the suffering that you are experiencing right now. Because the last thing, brothers and sisters, that we want for you is for you to realize in the midst of your suffering that you've built your entire life around something or someone other than Christ. And if suffering does nothing else, it certainly does that. It reveals to you what you've built your entire world around. Suffering removes all of the distractions that we busy ourselves with and reveals to us where we have wrongfully placed our hope and trust. And oftentimes it's a painful revelation that what we've hoped and trusted in is a false idol, in something that cannot stabilize us in the midst of our world falling apart, in something that cannot save us from our impending doom. But I want you to know that God is incredibly gracious so gracious that he is willing to bring suffering into our lives that he might reveal to us how our hope and trust has been placed somewhere other than him. It's what we call a severe mercy. And the reason he brings those severe mercies into our lives is because he loves us. He loves us. And he uses them to cause us to repent of our idolatry and to trust instead in him and him alone. But I also want you to realize that we as your pastors don't want it to have to come to that. We're willing to ask you the difficult and somewhat questions now so that you will be better prepared for the inevitable sufferings that you will experience in the near future. So I ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, where have you placed your hope and trust? Where have you placed it? Have you been like the wise man? And built your house upon the solid rock that is Jesus Christ? Or have you been like the foolish man and built your house upon the sand? I ask you that question now because when the storm comes, the house of those who built the rock who is Jesus will stand. But those who built their house upon the shifting sands of this world will fall. And oh, how I want for you to stand. My prayer is that each and every one of you in this room, when the storms of life come and you experience suffering, that you will be able to stand and say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. My rock is Jesus. And so to that end, to the end that you might be encouraged to stand upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ and him alone, I want us to see three spiritual truths from our text this morning. Three spiritual truths from our text. First of all, that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Second of all, that unbelievers stumble on the cornerstone. Unbelievers stumble on the cornerstone. And thirdly, that believers are built upon the cornerstone. Believers are built upon the cornerstone. So first of all, let's see how Jesus is the cornerstone. Look at verses one through six with me. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation 
if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now in these verses, Peter beautifully describes Christ as being a cornerstone. And he does so because this idea of the cornerstone was a biblical image that was used in the Old Testament. Peter actually cites three passages here from the Old Testament that he sees pointing to Christ as the cornerstone. And the main passage he camps on or that he references is Isaiah 28.6 where Isaiah prophesies that God will lay a sure foundation in Zion consisting of a tested cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone, if you know anything about masonry, is a great stone that is laid for the foundation of a building at the place where two walls come together. And this stone is always painstakingly prepared and chosen because it is such a crucial part of the building process. The stability of the entire structure depends on the cornerstone being meticulously chosen and cut. And if the cornerstone isn't prepared just right, it will cause the whole building to be unstable and potentially collapse altogether. And so the choosing of a qualified cornerstone is extremely important. And what Peter is saying here is that Jesus is the cornerstone in Zion that Isaiah prophesied about. Jesus is the one that God the Father has chosen to be the cornerstone of the church. Now a good question to ask yourself is, why did the Father choose Jesus to be the cornerstone of the church? And I want to give you two reasons why the Father chose Jesus to be the cornerstone. There aren't just two reasons, but two reasons in particular I want to emphasize for you this morning. First of all, Jesus is precious in the Father's sight. That's exactly what verse four says. And the reason that Jesus is precious in the Father's sight is because according to his divinity, according to Jesus' divinity, he is the eternal son of God. Which means that before time began, before anything else existed, just try to imagine that, I can't personally, but before anything else existed, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed in perfect, blissful, glorious communion with each other. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, has been the object of the Father's love for all eternity. Jesus didn't become precious in the Father's sight once he became a man. The Son of God has been precious in the sight of the Father from all eternity. And I don't know about you, but I can't even begin to fathom that kind of love. Contemplating that kind of eternal love overwhelms me. And part of the reason it overwhelms me is because Jesus prayed for you and for me in John 17 that we would experience from the Father the same love that he has for Jesus. Just think about that for a while. That should astound us. So first of all, Jesus is precious in the Father's sight. Second of all, God the Father chose Jesus to be the cornerstone of the church because Jesus alone was qualified for such a position. Jesus alone was qualified for such a position. 
Just as the bricklayer has to carefully and skillfully choose the proper cornerstone for the building, so too God the Father had to choose the proper cornerstone for the church. But unlike the bricklayer who has a myriad of options, the Father didn't have any options. Jesus was the only choice because Jesus was the only one who was qualified to fill that role. Think of it. Who else could have saved fallen humanity but one who was human himself? That's why Jesus had to take on humanity. Not only so he could live the perfect life that we owed God as humans, but also to suffer and die under the just wrath of God for our sins that we deserved as humans. So in order for Jesus to be qualified as the cornerstone, he had to be truly human, which he was. But Jesus also had to be truly divine to be qualified as the cornerstone. Think of it, who else could have reconciled us to God but God himself? Jesus had to be divine because the debt that we owed God was an infinite debt. Therefore, it would require infinite resources to pay that debt off. Well, what man among us has infinite resources? Not you, and certainly not me. Jesus alone did, because he was not only fully man, he was also fully God. You see, Jesus is the only God-man who ever was or ever will be. Therefore, Jesus alone is qualified to be the cornerstone, to be our cornerstone and the cornerstone of the church. So we've seen how Jesus is the cornerstone, first of all. Secondly, let's see how unbelievers stumble on the cornerstone. How unbelievers stumble on the cornerstone. Look at verses seven through eight with me. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What Peter reveals to us here is that tragically, in spite of the fact that Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone in God's sight, he is rejected and despised by men. It's as if men look at this perfect cornerstone who was chosen by the infallible mason and they decide for themselves that it was poorly selected. And rather than taking their brick and laying it on a sure and stable foundation, they seek to build their own elsewhere on a faulty and unstable foundation. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is offensive. Just try sharing the gospel with an unbeliever and you'll see what I'm talking about. People stumble over him all the time. That's literally what Peter is saying here. It's what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, brothers and sisters, the message of Jesus, the good news about what Jesus has done is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who don't believe. Now, don't get me wrong. When you run, run into them, they'll usually like some of Jesus' teachings and they don't have a problem with us trying to live up to the beatitudes that Jesus taught. They might even be moved to tears if we tell them that Jesus died on the cross to show his love for the world. But as soon as you try to start telling them that it's their sin that put Jesus on the cross, that their sins were so heinous in the sight of a holy God that he had to crush his own son as atonement for sin, they'll call it foolishness. When we preach the true Jesus, making a true atonement, the world will often reject him because he offends them. As Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, the God of this world, the devil, has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And we see this all around us, don't we? We see unbelievers rejecting Jesus as the cornerstone. But you know what? Even if you reject Jesus as the cornerstone, you have to build your life on something. The options aren't Jesus as the cornerstone or no cornerstone at all. The options are Jesus as the cornerstone or a faulty, weak, unstable cornerstone of your own making. Those are the options. And so unbelievers here this morning, I plead with you, take a good, hard look at your life the building of your life. Push on the walls a bit. See how strong they are. And what you'll find is that they're weak. And they're weak because they're built upon a faulty cornerstone. A cornerstone that will fail you. A cornerstone that will bring you nothing but shame. And lest you pridefully think unbeliever, that in rejecting Jesus as the cornerstone, that you have somehow thwarted the will of God, that you are defiantly shaking your fist in the face of your maker, or that you have somehow defeated almighty God, hear what Peter says to you. He says to you that you stumble because you disobey the word as you were destined to do. Unbelievers, hear me. You haven't thwarted God's sovereign will by your disobedience. You are simply doing what he has destined you to do. Now, don't get me wrong. You're responsible for your rebellion, and you'll have to pay for it. But don't think for a moment that you've thwarted the sovereign will of Almighty God. If you believe that, then the joke is on you, not on God. So we've seen how Jesus is the cornerstone, how unbelievers stumble on the cornerstone, and thirdly, let's see how believers are built upon the cornerstone. How believers are built upon the cornerstone. Look at verses five and nine through 10 with me. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now I have to let you know that I absolutely love these verses because they reveal to us our incredible new identity in Jesus. And I want you to take note that each of the descriptions that Peter gives of our new identity don't primarily stress our individual identity, but rather the corporate nature of our new identity. And I think that's important for us to think about because we are so incredibly individualistic as a culture. And unfortunately, that individualism has seeped into the church as well. So we need to be reminded of how precious our corporate identity in Jesus is. And that's what, exactly what Peter does in these verses. You see this first of all in how he describes us as living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house. Now again, Peter knows his Old Testament really well. And he's alluding here to Old Testament biblical imagery. And the image he wants us to conjure up is the image of the temple. You remember in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God would meet with his people. It was the place where his presence dwelt in a very special way. And what Peter is saying here is that we corporately, together as Christians, are now the temple of God. And you can see this truth clearly played out in the drama of redemption. Think of it. Remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament? The tabernacle was essentially the precursor to the temple. It was like a portable temple for the people as they wandered in the wilderness. And the Israelites would know when God would want them to break camp or set up camp because the cloud would either stop or start moving. The cloud was, of course, the symbol of God's presence with them. And wherever the cloud would go, it would always hover over the tabernacle, it would always be over the tabernacle. Well, interestingly enough, when we jump forward to the New Testament, what do we see happen to believers at Pentecost? Do you remember? As they gathered for worship, tiny tongues of fire appeared above their heads. Now, have you ever asked yourself why that happened, why that was? It was to show them and symbolize that just as the cloud had hovered over the tabernacle to symbolize God's presence, now God's presence resides within all believers through the Holy Spirit. God was letting us know that we as his people are now the new tabernacle, the new temple. Each of us being chosen stones who are being built upon Jesus, the precious cornerstone. So you see, brothers and sisters, there's no room at all for individualism. One single stone can't make a temple all by itself. You can't grow up into the full maturity that Christ wants for you all by yourself. We are a part of each other. So let me ask you, if that's the reality, if the reality is that we are all stones being built up as a spiritual house together, how connected are you are you so connected here at Sovereign Grace that if you began to shift around, your shifting would be felt by the other bricks around you? Are you so, or are you so isolated from the rest of the wall that you're almost not even a part of it? Not really connected at all. And please don't think that I'm trying to pick on you. I confess that I need to grow in this as well. 
Individualism has infected me just as much as it's infected you. And so I don't want you to think that I'm trying to stand up here and guilt you. What I want us to realize is who we are in Christ. I want us to acknowledge the reality that we are in fact a spiritual house. We don't try to become a spiritual house and therefore make it a reality. We are a spiritual house in Christ. So let us live in light of that reality. And you want to know the only way that's going to happen? The only way that's going to happen is if Jesus is the cornerstone of this church. Doctrine can't be our cornerstone, as important as it is. Cultural sensibilities can't be our cornerstone. Our good works can't be our cornerstone. Jesus and Jesus alone must be the cornerstone of Sovereign Grace Church. Nothing else. And Jesus must also be the cornerstone of each one of our lives. Our families can't be our cornerstone. As important as they are, our jobs can't be our cornerstone. Our knowledge can't be our cornerstone. Jesus and Jesus alone must be the cornerstone of our lives. Nothing and no one else. Brothers and sisters, as a church, we are a collection of living stones that the Father has graciously chosen to be built upon the precious cornerstone, Jesus. That's the reality of who we are. Peter goes on to describe us in verse nine as a new ethnicity. He says that God has made us in Christ a chosen race. Again, Peter is alluding to Old Testament imagery here. And what he's saying is that just as God chose the Jews to be his people by freeing them from the hands of their oppressors when they were enslaved in Egypt, so too he has chosen peoples from every tongue, tribe, and nation to be his own by freeing them from their slavery to the flesh, the world, and the devil. God's chosen people are no longer confined to a specific racial or ethnic group. In Jesus, God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. And so now, in Jesus, our primary ethnicity is not based on our race. Our ethnicity is based on the fact that we are united to Jesus. Our new ethnicity in Jesus is holy. That's why we long and pray for racial diversity in our church. Honestly, I frequently and fervently pray for racial diversity in our church because to me, it's a beautiful picture of what the gospel is all about. Peoples from all tongues, tribes, and nations rejoicing in their risen Savior, finding their common bond in him and their new ethnicity as holy in Jesus. And lastly, Peter describes us as a royal priesthood in verse nine. Again, alluding to Old Testament imagery, Peter reminds us of what an incredible status we enjoy in Jesus. In the Old Testament, there was no higher spiritual status than that of a priest. They were ever before God serving him and on occasion, they were privileged to be in his presence in the Holy of Holies. And what Peter is saying here is that there is no longer any need for a special class of priests. The special class of priests in the Old Testament was a shadow of Jesus who is the reality. Jesus is now our great high priest. And now that Jesus has come, he has given us the privilege to be priests in him 
all of us, every single one of us has access to the Father through Jesus. Sometimes people joke with me and they ask me to pray for them because they think I have a special in with God is what they say. And I'm more than happy to pray for you, but I don't want you to be under any illusion that just because I'm a pastor, I have a special in with God. All of us have just as much access to the Father as the next person. We are all priests who now have access into the Holy of Holies. And as such, we now have the privilege of being able to offer spiritual sacrifices to God that please him through Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but that truth absolutely astounds me. Because the Bible elsewhere says that our good works are like filthy rags before a holy God. That is, all of my good works are tainted by sin, so they can't stand up to the scrutiny of God's perfection. But what Peter tells us here is that our good works please God because Jesus takes them and perfects them and then they are acceptable and pleasing to the Father. That's why I hope you realize that the work that each of you do every single day, whether you're a plumber or a banker or a full-time homemaker, whatever your vocation is, that is the work, the spiritual sacrifice that you offer to the Father and it's pleasing through Jesus because it's offered to him through Christ. All that we do now as a royal priesthood is worship that we might proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Brothers and sisters, as those who are built upon the precious cornerstone, this is our incredible new identity, our identity as a part of the family of God. Unbelievers here this morning, you are in a very precarious situation. You're building your entire life around a cornerstone that cannot support you. It will fail you. And so I plead with you this morning, abandon your faulty building project. Turn to Jesus, the cornerstone that you have rejected and build your life on him. Put your hope and trust in him. Cry out to him. He's the only one who can save you. And believers here this morning, we have so much to rejoice over. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church who is chosen and precious in God's sight. Jesus alone is qualified to rescue and redeem us. And he has graciously done so by his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. And God has graciously chosen us as living stones to be built up together as a spiritual house upon Jesus, our cornerstone. In him, we are the new temple. In him, we share the new ethnicity of holiness. And in him, we are a royal priesthood. So in light of that, may God be pleased to prepare us for our future sufferings and sustain us through our current sufferings by building us firmly upon Jesus Christ, our precious cornerstone. And may the cry of our hearts ever be, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ 
the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly humbled by the fact that you have redeemed us because we were once like those who had rejected the cornerstone that you had chosen. We were once those who stumbled on Jesus, who were offended by the truth of the gospel, who hated you and were trying to build our life around a faulty, untrustworthy cornerstone. And yet when we were in that state is when you came and saved us and brought us out of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious light. That's when you saved us and caused us to be born again. And now, because we are united with Jesus, built upon him as the chief cornerstone, we are being built up as, cho as chosen cornerstones to be a temple unto you to be a royal priesthood unto you, to be a chosen people and race unto you, Father, whose ethnicity is no longer defined by our race, but upon the fact that we are united with Jesus and our primary ethnicity is now holiness. So, Father, we pray that we would rejoice in our new corporate identities and that we would live in light of them, that we would live in light of the fact that we are a part of the temple of God. May we not live as if we are separated, some single stone sitting off by itself, but may our lives be intertwined with each other as they truly are in Jesus. May we live in light of that reality. Father, all to the praise of your glorious grace that the world may look and see and say, my God must really be who he says he is because look how they love each other. May we be known by our love because of the radical love that you have transformed us with. And may we put away as a royal priesthood all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And may we always be longing for the spiritual milk and meat of the word that is your gospel. We ask this all humbly and boldly in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, the chosen precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Amen.